Great. And thanks for those who moved to say hello to someone who was sitting on their owner, for example. You can pick up those conversations afterwards. Uh, if you can access a Bible, could I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2? As most of you probably know, on Sunday mornings we're navigating our way through this letter. And earlier, as uh, Stephen prayed there, we, we read chapter 7 together. But on Sunday evenings we're looking at chapters 2 and 3 and at the seven specific messages of Jesus to each of the seven churches to which the overall letter is uh, addressed to. And so far on Sunday evenings, we've listened to the message addressed to the church at Ephesus about first love, and then to the church at Smyrna about suffering for the faith. And tonight, it's to the church in Pergamum that Jesus speaks. But as we've been saying all along, the message to each church is for all churches including Windsor Baptist. And therefore, we need to be open and we need to be sensitive to what the Spirit might be saying to us via this particular message. So we're going to read it together. And if you're able and willing, please stand with me for the public reading of God's Word. The words will be on screen as well. So this is verse 12 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Grab a seat. Every time Jesus begins each of his seven messages, he introduces himself in a different way which turns out to be and is often relevant to what he then goes on to say. So have a look at verse one of chapter two. Here's how he introduces himself to the church at Ephesus. It's the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lamps stands. Then you go down to verse eight. Here's how he introduces himself to Smyrna, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And then here in Pergamum, here's how he introduces himself there. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, that is not a new image. It's not a new idea in Revelation. If you have a Bible open there, flick back to chapter one, where John sees Jesus among the seven lampstands, the seven churches. And as he describes the one he sees, who's like a son of man, look at verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, sharp two-edged sword. So, this is clearly a significant aspect to Jesus, this whole idea of a sharp two-edged sword, having one coming out of his mouth. Before we get to the message, let me say something about the place Pergamum, because this is important as we get into this. 
One, it was a strong center of paganism. Issues around truth and error were hotly debated in this city. It was home to numerous temples and altars to various gods, including Zeus, the greatest of the Greek gods. But maybe more important than anything, it was a hub of the imperial cult. And so Rome and its emperor were passionately worshipped. Caesar is Lord was the expected mantra. Now, as Jesus speaks into their situation, he quickly recognizes the reality of where they are. I love this. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, says Jesus to them. I, I know where you live. I know all about the prevailing culture you find yourselves in. I know the battle that rages in your city for your mind and your thinking. I know your circumstances. I know the state of affairs in that place. I know the value systems that you're surrounded by and you're living in. I know the ambient spiritual atmosphere. I know it. And for what it's worth, it's really important for us to realize that Jesus knows our 21st century Western cultural context and conditions. He knows. He knows exactly what's going on. But notice what he says next here. I know where you dwell. And then he adds this bit, where Satan's throne is. And then when you glance down to verse 13, he also says, where Satan dwells. See, Jesus is under no illusion. He knew the source. He knows the source of all error. Jesus recognized the dark and pervasive influencer and deceiver who was and still is a reality today. Jesus never underestimated Satan. Called him the prince of this world on at least one occasion. And the rest of the New Testament, as we know, does not trivialize or downplay Satan. He's a prowler. He's like a lion. He's seeking to devour. Or to quote Paul, he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And he's up for a fight. Yes, he's been defeated. We've looked at this before. He has been defeated, but he is still active. He still seeks to have an influence. He still wants to mess with people's heads, their thinking, their hearts. He's still intent on wrecking ruin. Which is why, for example, as we've looked at before, Paul stresses the need for Christians to put on the armor of God now. Because we're in a battle. And Satan is on borrowed time, as we know, and certainly Revelation's going to reveal. But meantime, he's a serious threat. And in Pergamum, Jesus knows the deal. He knows the influence that Satan can have and has on many cities. And Jesus knows the deal in Belfast. And so Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know how it is in that city, where Satan's throne is. I know who's behind all this. But there's two things I want to commend you for, church. And I love this. You remain true to my name or you hold fast to my name. And the second thing is you did not renounce. You have not denied your faith in me. But then Jesus immediately follows that up with a complaint. But what he's saying here is 
Guys, you haven't walked away from me. You still bear my name. And you haven't abandoned the faith. You're holding on to it. But I've got certain things against you. And these things are pretty serious. Because it appears that this church and these Christians are mixing it up. There's compromise. They're listening to and they're buying into the false teaching of others, including those from within their own ranks. They're allowing others to have a negative influence on their thinking and on their acting, on their belief and on their behavior. There is careless tolerance. And Jesus names the others who they're listening to and who they're being influenced by. There are some among you who hold some among you who are part of this. They're part of this church. Some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And then there's also some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. As I say, it's not that this church and these Christians have stopped following Jesus. They haven't. They haven't walked away from their faith. They're just willing to dilute some things willing to veer off in certain directions, accommodate practices and values that undermine their witness. They are becoming tolerant of false ideas. And the question is, who's Balaam? And who are the Nicolaitans? And what is it that they're actually pushing and teaching? Well, to those of you who know, again, your Old Testament, you'll know that Balaam was a prophet and you read his story in the, the book of Numbers, and here's just a quick summary. Balak, who, who is named in this text here, he was the king of Moab, and he summoned Balaam to come. And he asked Balaam, Balaam, I want you to curse the tribes of Israel who are about to cross the Jordan River and enter the promised land. That's what I want you to do. But the problem was, every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse the people of Israel, the words God gave him to speak were words of blessing brilliant. Certainly not the plan as far as Balaam was concerned. Now, Balak had offered Balaam a reward for cursing the Israelites. And so driven by greed, Balaam comes up with another plan to damage the Israelites. And so he suggests to the king that Moabite girls should seduce the Israelite guys and invite them to take part in their adulterous and immoral feasts. Which is why we read in verse 14, as we read together, Jesus saying this, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So some of these Christians in Pergamum were willing to hold to this, to accommodate it. Surely, just a little idolatry is okay, provided it doesn't get out of hand. Just a little immorality, a little sexual immorality isn't that big a deal, is it? I mean, we're Christians. We're still at church. We're still following Jesus. We're not denying anything. We're not denying, any, denying anyone. But we don't see any great problem with just blurring a few lines. We're okay with letting certain standards drop. 
will entertain some things that aren't exactly Christian, aren't exactly true, certainly aren't exactly God-honoring. But hey, on the whole, we're still holding fast to Jesus. We haven't denied the faith. Did you ever go there? Did you ever go there? What about the Nicolaitans? Well, who are they? Well, we've come across them before if you've been following this series. If you've got a Bible open, look up at verse 6 of chapter 2, where after Jesus points out a problem with the Ephesian church about how they had lost their first love, he affirms them. He says this to them, yet this you have. In other words, this is a good thing I'm going to say. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, those are pretty strong words that come out of the mouth of Jesus. Do you ever think of Jesus as hating? It's strange, is it not? I also hate the work of these guys, says Jesus. Must have been bad, must have been dangerous. Thankfully, the Ephesian church hated the work of the Nicolaitans too, but here in Pergamum, they don't. In fact, it's worse than that. They're holding on to some of their teaching. They're embracing it. Now, we're not entirely sure what their teaching was, but most people, most Bible commentators think that what Balaam was to old Israel, the Nicolaitans were to the new Israel, the church. So again, they promoted or didn't see anything wrong with some idol worship. I mean, it's okay if other things begin to take a priority in your life over and above God. Surely it's just natural. We live in a real physical world, a material world, and there are other things that just do become more important. Those are idols, but that's okay. It's all right to pursue different things, to have them as number one in your life. Plus, some immorality some messing about, some messing around, some lowering of the standards, some compromises, okay. Especially when you live and breathe in a culture, in a context where anything goes and where the clash of values between God's word and the culture is so extreme that to hang on, to maintain Christianity with integrity is almost impossible. It's laughable at best. It's intolerant at worst. See, there's very little that is new under the sun. These risks, these dangers still exist today for Christians. For me, I feel them for churches today. How many of us can identify with the temptation to compromise our faith a bit, to dilute holiness, turn down the dial, to let certain things cloud right things, to allow the culture that we live in to just start squeezing us into its mold, to go with the flow rather than saying what's true, to tolerate nonsense. And I could go on. Well, in Pergamum, the problem was acute because some in this church are holding on to this teaching and holding on to this agenda. 
And it was more than just messing around and dropping the garden, dabbling in certain things. It actually says they, they, as I say, they accepted it. They believed it. They went for it. There is a real contrast here. Look at verse 13. You hold fast my name, says Jesus. But then verse 14 and 16, you also hold the teaching of Balaam. You hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You hold fast my name. You hold, like, you can't do both. You can't do both and which is why Jesus is pretty direct in what he calls for. Just two words. Therefore, repent. And then he goes on to explain the consequences of not doing so. But let me just stick with these first two words. Therefore, repent. Now, repent can often be seen as a harsh word or instruction, but in fact, it can also be viewed as a word of hope telling us and communicating to us that no matter how far off course we've gone, there is still an opportunity to return. To return to God and to return to his ways. To repent is generally thought of as a kind of an about face, that instead of going in one direction away from God, you kind of turn and go in a particular direction towards God. One of the important aspects of this is the recognition and the admission that you're going in the wrong direction on certain things. And then to repent literally means I'm going to change my way of thinking. I need to renew my mind. I need not to let this culture squeeze me into its mold. I need to maintain the standards. I need to keep the dial and holiness held high. And this is what Jesus calls this church and these Christians to do. Their thinking had become skewed. She says you need to replace wrong thoughts with right thoughts. You need to teach, you remember truth. Truth of who I am, my teaching, the gospel, the faith, which you're not denying. I give, give you that, you're not denying it. But you are diluting it. Jesus loved the truth. He taught the truth. He was the truth. Jesus was passionately intolerant of false ideas that damage people's heads and hearts. And a key part of this repentance and renewing of our minds involves our listening to and our engagement with his word. Where we hear truth, where we confront truth and right teaching, where we find instruction about holiness and godliness. Which is why or part of the reason at the start Jesus introduces himself as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. There's a couple of dimensions to this, I know. But one is definitely the place and the importance of the word of God, which is described, we know, by Paul as the sword of the spirit. And in Hebrews 4, it is saying, the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of my heart. The Bible, the word of God is essential in maintaining truth. It's essential in keeping us on the right track. It's essential in shaping our thinking, influencing our thought life, renewing our minds, guarding us against error. 
But there's another aspect to this sharp sword in the mouth of Jesus. Because the sword to pierce the conscience, which it often does, dividing joint and marrow, exposing us. The sword to pierce the conscience will become, according to Jesus, the sword that'll destroy you. The sword of judgment, which might sound extreme, but look at the consequences of verse 16 says of not repenting. If not, I will come to you soon and I will war against them with a sword in my mouth. Jesus will hold to account those who promote error and false teaching, those who take truth and twist it, those who lead others astray, those who distort God's word. For the church, for the Christians in Pergamum, they need to repent. That's their challenge. God is going to deal with those who twist his truth and to encourage others to buy into their teaching. But for those who have bought into it, they need to repent. I found this deeply challenging this week as I've reflected on this. Because how easy it is, how easy it is to just let idolatry creep in a wee bit and immorality to just seep in still a Christian, still following Jesus. I'm not denying the faith, I'm still at church. And after Jesus says this, as he often does then, he offers a promise for those who do, for those who obey, for those who do, in this case, repent. He says this, and it's, it's an interesting one. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who has victory in this, to the one who lives this, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who is. What is hidden manna? What is the white stone with a new name written on it? Anyone got a clue? <laughs> well, in terms of the hidden manna, let me just share a couple of possibilities. Just as God's people were fed by man in the wilderness, so today our spiritual hunger is satisfied by Jesus, who is the bread of life. Jesus has given and Jesus gives himself to us. He satisfies. He is the truth. Just listen to Jesus. Just feed on Jesus. But in addition, this is believed to be a reference to and a pointer for the church towards the marriage supper of the Lamb, where one day those who conquer, those who remain faithful, those who stay true to Jesus will dine at the king's table. You will enjoy hidden manna for all eternity. And the white stone, well, there are various takes in this. I read nine different ones this week. One of the, and there is no definitive answer, okay, as far as I'm aware. I'm not going to give you all nine, don't panic. But one of the most popular, and this, this kind of follows from what I've just been saying about the hidden manna, refers to those who apparently at that time, kind of first century, remember this is around AD 96 we're talking here, but those who were victorious in ancient games at the time were given a white pebble in order to gain access to the celebration banquet that was happening after the games. And therefore Jesus may have been saying that, listen, see if you overcome, see if you stay true to me, see if you don't compromise, see if you don't dial down on the holiness things then you'll get a white stone which provides you access to the greatest banquet of all. 
But there's an added aspect to the stone, isn't there? Because there's a new name written on it. And surely that name's Jesus. Because forever we're his. If we belong to him. Forever we are his. Our identity is now no longer wrapped up in whatever else it gets wrapped up in. Our identity of Christians is we are in Christ. We bear his name. He is the truth. I know we often say this, and we've been saying it lately a lot. It's all because of Jesus, and it really is. The hidden manna is Jesus. We are fed and sustained by him, and the new name is Jesus, and we belong to him, and it is only because of him that we can live this life both now and for all eternity, and we can look forward to eating at the table of the king. And then, as I say, the line is repeated, comes just before this, that we find in every message to every church which says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is the Spirit saying to us tonight? But asking myself this week, what is the Spirit saying to you, David, about the way you live your life? About what you're thinking about? About what you're dwelling on? Is there idolatry? Are you compromising on truth? Are you mixing it up? Has careless tolerance got a grip? Are there idols? Have I begun to get let immorality creep in a wee bit? Am I giving the devil a foothold? He dwells here. Do I need to repent? Let me invite you just in a moment's silence to reflect before a close. Are we compromising in truth? Are we mixing it up? Has careless tolerance got a grip? Are other things more of a priority than God? Have we dropped the guard and the enemy has got a foothold? Do we need to repent? Final thought, Revelation's heavy, isn't it? <laughs> I'm really realizing that at one level, it's amazing, it, but it's also a sense of heaviness at times. But there's a person in that message tonight, uh, and they might have belonged to the church or they might not, we don't know for sure, who I haven't made any reference to tonight, but I'm finishing with this. We know nothing about this guy in here, other than what's mentioned now. His name is Antipas. Don't know if you picked up on him. But here's how Jesus described him. You're my faithful witness. See, it is possible to hold fast to Jesus and not deny the faith. It is possible not to hold any other teaching. Although the fact this guy got killed among them implies there may be a cost involved in doing that. 